Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. There are a whole bunch of viruses going around, and everybody gets their turn with it. And on Sunday morning, I mentioned that I was feeling like something was trying to get me. But then I got preaching, and I felt fine. And then as soon as I stopped preaching, I felt sickly again. And this thing is trying to get me. It's, it's hanging around the edges, so I'm doing Tylenol and coldies and everything to try to keep it away from me. And so I've got the body aches and the head cloudiness and everything else. And my son said, you're going to go teach tonight? And I said, well, yes, because people who have this go to their day jobs and they work anyway. So I'm going to go and do this. And he said, it's okay. As soon as you start preaching, you'll feel better. (laughs) So if that's true, if 15 minutes from now I start to feel much better, then I'm just not leaving here tonight. And if any of you get weary and need to go, you can just go. But I'm going to stand here and preach till I'm falling down sleeping. Turn to the end of 2 Kings. We are going to finish the book of 2 Kings tonight. (laughs) I got pantomime applause for that. It will only take us about 10 minutes, if that, to finish the book of 2 Kings... But then we are also going to look at the end of the book of Jeremiah, because we've been looking at Jeremiah for the last several weeks. Jeremiah 52, which is right at the end of the book of Jeremiah, is an exact duplicate of 2 Kings 25, which adds credibility to the idea that Jeremiah was the author, or perhaps he and Baruch together, they authored First and Second Kings. We might even, if we're fortunate, get to the end of First and Second Chronicles tonight. We'll close up in Second Chronicles because we have occasionally been showing the parallels between the two. And then, hopefully, after looking at the last prophecy that we want to consider this time around, we might even close the book of Jeremiah tonight. In which case, next week we will pick up in the book of Daniel, and then the book of Ezekiel, and then we might be in Ezekiel till Jesus comes. We'll start in 2 Kings and we'll see how much of that plan actually comes to fruition. I know, I know it's a lot. I hear you. (laughs) So we are going to start in 2 Kings 25, starting at verse 22. That's the only part that we have not read or considered yet. It's very straightforward narrative, but it also tells us a little bit about evil Merodach. Now, he becomes king of Babylon after his father Nebuchadnezzar dies. Last week, we met Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law who is going to murder evil Merodach after he's only been king for like two years. And that is right around 560 B.C., so that gives us some idea where we're at in relation to the coming of Christ. We're about 550 years prior to the coming of Christ at this point. And things are going to happen in fairly quick succession. We're going to notice tonight that Jeremiah is going to predict the coming of the Persian Empire and the Median Persian Empire, which is going to conquer Babylon. And God is going to say very specifically that he is going to use the Medes and the Persians to conquer Babylon. Now, if you've gotten nothing else out of all this, we've been doing this for years now, going through the Old Testament. And I keep making the same point over and over again, so I'm going to make it again just so that it's planted in our heads. If you get nothing else from this, you've got to get that God is absolutely sovereign over the events of human history. Because tonight, Jeremiah is going to predict the same way that Isaiah said, 
that the Assyrians were going to be used by God in order to punish the Israelites, and then God punished the Assyrians for the haughtiness with which they conquered Israel. So God, in his sovereignty, used Assyria to punish Israel, and then he punished Assyria for punishing Israel. Tonight we're going to see Jeremiah say the same thing about Babylon, that God used Babylon in order to conquer the southern kingdom, Judah, then God is going to predict that he is going to mop up the floor with Babylon. He's going to leave it a ruin because they attacked his people, Jerusalem. And yet God says over and over again, I'm going to use Babylon to conquer Judah. He takes complete credit for it. That's what we've been seeing for weeks and weeks, that God takes complete credit for allowing Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans to come down on Judah, to punish Judah. But having accomplished that, God is then going to punish Babylon for the way that they attacked his chosen people. And he's going to use the Medes and the Persians to do it. And it's so specific. It's right at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, which is going to last for 70 years, and yet it's specific that it's the Medes and the Persians that are going to conquer Babylon, which seemed impregnable at the time. It was ridiculous for anyone to think that Babylon was going to be conquered. They ruled the Middle East. There was no way that they could be conquered because once they were inside their walls and closed their gates, they even had a water source that flowed right under the wall into Babylon. So you couldn't even really starve them out because they could grow their own food and they had plenty of water and everything was good for them. And the way that the Medo-Persians ultimately conquered Babylon was by damming up the stream that was leading under the wall into Babylon. And once the water stopped, they went under the wall. And then from the inside, opened the gates and ultimately conquered Babylon. Now it's going to be under the Persian leadership of Cyrus that this is all going to happen. And Cyrus was predicted by name, by Isaiah, 150 years in advance. Who was going to let the children of Israel come back ultimately to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. When you look at the book of Daniel, after Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he asks the magicians and the soothsayers what the dream is all about, ultimately Daniel's able to tell him what it is, that he saw a giant statue and that he was the head of gold and then it predicted the next four kingdoms in succession that were going to rule over Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar and the very next kingdom is the Medes and the Persians. So it's predicted over and over and over again that this is what God's going to do. He's going to conquer Babylon. He's going to conquer them via the Medes and Persians, that Cyrus is going to be the leader of the Persians, and that they are going to allow the children of Judah to go back to rebuild the temple and the city. So there's no question that this is going to happen, even though as it's being predicted, Nobody could even imagine such a thing. So you've just got to see not only God's sovereignty in not simply predicting the future, but in declaring what the future is going to be, declaring the name of Cyrus 150 years in advance, and then sure enough, there rises up a ruler in Persia whose name just happens to be Cyrus which I think completely undermines the concept of human free will. Because if anybody in that 150-year gap had decided to do something else, marry somebody else, name their children something else, well, then God would be wrong. But God declared what he was going to do. He's declared it through several of the prophets. And sure enough, that's what history says actually occurred, actually happened. So with that background, we're now going to look at the end of 2 Kings, hoping that you have seen God's sovereignty throughout all of this, and that you understand that God's sovereignty extends not only into what he prophesies and declares, but that God's sovereignty even extends into his ability to say 
who's going to punish his people and then punish the people that punished his people so that both his people get punished and the punishers get punished because God is righteous and holy to judge in all circumstances. So if you got that big picture, really, really sovereign God. Verse 22. Now, as for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, over them. When all the captains of the forces, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah to Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the Netophathite, and Jaazaniah, the son of the Maakathite, they and their men. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. But it came about in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down so that he died along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him in Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. For it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the last genuine descendant of David to serve as king, the one who was not a puppet king to Nebuchadnezzar, the one who was ultimately conquered by Babylon. It came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. That's the end of Second Kings, but that is also the end of Jeremiah 52. And it ends with Jehoiakim being treated kindly by the king, Evil Merodach. But like I told you, Evil Merodach is rewarded by only being king of Babylon for two years. And then he's murdered by his brother-in-law. So with that, we can now officially say that we're done with second kings. Turn to Jeremiah. Before you turn to Jeremiah, turn to 2 Chronicles 36. Let's go ahead and just wrap that book up too. Because we have occasionally been bouncing back and forth between the kings and the chronicles to show the parallels. But the very, very last thing that you read in 2 Chronicles is Cyrus coming. Starting in verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia. So we've just leapt over the Babylonian captivity right there. The Babylonian captivity isn't even written about in the second chronicles because it's just a chronicle of the kings of Israel and Judah. So it leaps over that too. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus the Persian so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. 
So it is Cyrus's decree, ultimately, once he conquers Babylon, that any of the children of Judah who want to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city are free to go back. And that takes us into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and all that. We'll get to that eventually. Before we do that, we have to look at Esther. And we have to look into the Babylonian captivity a little more because there's still Daniel and Ezekiel to consider. So we've got plenty to do. Now you can turn to Jeremiah. Right toward the end of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 50. Now leading up to Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 46 is a prediction of the defeat of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Chapter 47 is a prophecy against Philistia. 48 is a prophecy against Moab. 49 is a prophecy against Ammon. And then starting in verse 7, a prophecy against Edom. Starting at verse 23, a prophecy against Damascus. There are prophecies against Kedar and Hazar. There's a prophecy against Elam starting at verse 34, and that brings us to chapter 50. Chapter 50 is a prophecy against Babylon, and it is so extensive that it takes up the next two chapters, and it is two of the longer chapters in the book of Jeremiah. So there's a lot of reading to do here tonight, but I may skip over some portions for time's sake. But we need to understand how absolutely sovereign God makes himself out to be in these two chapters. Then after chapter 50 and 51, you get to chapter 52, which, like I told you, is identical to 2 Kings 25. So we've already read that. So there's a good likelihood that having finished 2 Kings and having finished 2 Chronicles, there's a good likelihood we'll finish Jeremiah tonight. And then we can go on into Daniel and Ezekiel and all kinds of fun things. Starting at chapter 50, verse 1, the word of the Lord came concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through Jeremiah the prophet. Declare and proclaim among the nations. Proclaim it and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Bel, or Baal, has been put to shame. Marduk, one of the gods of Babylon, has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. Now, as Jeremiah is saying this, Babylon is the impregnable capital of the whole Middle East. They have conquered widely and broadly at God's hand. God took credit for it and said he's going to give all these nations into the hand of Babylon, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But now God is saying that he's going to destroy Babylon. And by the way, as you're reading this language of God's destruction of Babylon, I'm trying to think of the, the recent fellow in Iraq who was Saddam Hussein, who was found in a hole somewhere in Iraq. But while he was in power, he actually struck a coin where he had the image of Nebuchadnezzar and the image of himself. You can find it on the internet. Gold coins with the image of him and Nebuchadnezzar on it because he was determined to rebuild Babylon. Something that he never did. Why didn't he do it? Because God said it's not going to be rebuilt. And even Saddam Hussein determined to rebuild it and striking coins, likening himself to the greatest Middle Eastern ruler in Iraq, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, even he with all his forces, power and determination couldn't do it because God said it's never going to happen. So that's what we're about to see. Now also, boy, I wish I could get all this out and then we could read. Also, you're going to see Jeremiah do something that is very, very typical of the way that the prophets all talk. We have seen it many, many times where Jeremiah talks about what is going to happen almost immediately. These predictions are happening while he's in Babylon. 
the Medo-Persian Empire is going to conquer Babylon within that 70-year time frame. And so it can happen pretty quickly, right away. Within a generation, the conquering of Babylon is going to happen. And yet several times you're going to see Jeremiah talk about things that can only be satisfied and fulfilled in the final days. In fact, as you read the book of, of Revelation, you see several times that even angels from heaven say, Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. Well, no, it fell all the way back here in 500 BC. It, it fell a long time ago. But the influence of Babylon and the gods of Babylon and the religion of Babylon continues to make waves and ripples throughout all of human history until it is ultimately done away with eschatologically. So you're going to see hints of that in Jeremiah, where he's going to talk about Babylon being destroyed, but then he's going to describe it in ways that can only be satisfied when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom that will never be conquered. So take that into account as we read this too. Okay, I think I've introduced this enough. I think we can read it now. Starting at verse 3, for a nation has come up against her out of the north. If you were to look at a Middle Eastern map, if you were to look at where Babylon is, and then take a look at the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire is to the east of them, and then north, and the Medo-Persians ultimately conquer all that area even larger than Babylon conquered. So truly, it is armies coming down from the north. For a nation has come up against her out of the north. It will make her land an object of horror, and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off. They have gone away. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well, and they will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God that they will seek. Okay, now that did not occur when Cyrus the Mede allowed the Judahites to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The northern tribes, the Israelites, were still scattered, and then Assyria was overtaken by Babylon, so they were caught up in some of that captivity. And then after the Medo-Persians come in, they go north and they disappear essentially into history, even though there are folks out there trying to trace where these various tribes have gone. So here's God saying that at that time, when he utterly destroys Babylon, at that time both Judah and Israel will come back to their land weeping and seeking their God which is very much like what we see out of Zechariah, that they're going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. It's very much like Jesus saying to the Pharisees and to the leaders of the Jews that they're not going to see him again until they say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. He predicts that he's going to be back again and that when he is, then they're all going to recognize him as blessed. And so here they're coming back in repentance. They're coming back weeping, and they're seeking after their God. Well, that hasn't happened yet, but it is promised to happen. And so that's an eschatological prediction in the midst of, a, of an immediate event, which is going to be the Medo-Persians conquering Babylon. This, of course, is the international hand sign for the Medo-Persians. I don't know what that is right there. That's the stirring the pot. No, this way. No, no, that's the Chinese. But the <laughs> I have no idea why that's funny. But in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. They will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God that they will seek. They will ask. For the way of Zion, how do we get back to our land? How do we go back to Zion? Turning their face in its direction, they will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. Is it worth pointing out that the covenant that was made with Moses at Mount Sinai, with Israel and Judah, 
was not an everlasting covenant. That's the covenant that Paul keeps calling the old covenant that was done away by the new covenant. And God here promises Israel and Judah specifically that he is going to be in covenant with them forever in an everlasting covenant. And that's different than the Mosaic covenant, which they broke, which brought about all this pain and agony on them, which sent them out of their land. So God is going to bring them in again and establish an everlasting covenant with them. And that is the culmination of what's going to happen to national Israel and national Judah. And it's not enough to say that's the church. Because then you would have to say that the church went into the Babylonian captivity or that the church went into the Assyrian captivity and then were scattered and never returned to their land. There's just simply no way to make this analogous to the church. It has to be the house of Israel and the house of Judah because that's who God is specifically identifying here. They will come and they will join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have become lost sheep. Does that sound familiar, by the way? It's the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus walked around saying it, saying, that when he was sending out the gospel of the kingdom, that they were to go not to the Gentiles and not into the way of the Samaritans, but go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That nomenclature was very specific and already known by all the Jews that he was speaking to. My people have become lost sheep. And of course, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Their shepherds have led them astray. I think we could say that's happening even now. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along the mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. All who have come upon them have devoured them and their adversaries have said, we are not guilty inasmuch as they have sinned against the Lord who is the habitation of righteousness. Even the Lord, the hope of their fathers, wander away from the midst of Babylon and go forth from the Chaldeans. Be also like male goats at the head of the flock. For behold, I am going to arouse and bring up against Babylon a horde of great nations. Notice that it's not a nation. It's great nations because it was the Medes and the Persians that got together to do this. So what was nations? God's very specific. A horde of great nations from the land of the north, and they will draw up their battle plans against her. From there, she will be taken captive. Their arrows will be like an expert warrior who does not return empty-handed. And Chaldea will become plunder. All who plunder her will have enough, declares the Lord. Because you are glad, because you are jubilant, O oh, you who pillage my heritage, because you skip about like threshing heifers and neigh like stallions, your mother will be greatly ashamed. She who gave you birth will be humiliated. Behold, she will be the least of the nations, and wilderness, and a parched land, and a desert. Anybody been to Iraq lately? Anybody been to that area of the Middle East? It is, in fact, a desert over there. One of the reasons that the rebuilding of Babylon was going to be such a big chore. Verse 13, because of the indignation of the Lord, she will not be inhabited and she will be completely desolate. And everyone who passes by Babylon will be horrified and will hiss because of all her wounds. Draw up your battle lines against Babylon on every side, all you who bend the bow. Shoot at her. Do not be sparing with your arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Now, this is one of those places where we just have to talk about the sovereignty of God again. What did she do that God did not designate she would do? Nothing. She did exactly what God said she would do. God took credit for giving her all the nations of the Middle East and making her a mighty power, opening gates to her and 
making the rough places smooth and giving Nebuchadnezzar command and control over all the animals and the beasts of the field and all the people. God did all that. And here God says, for she has sinned against the Lord. How? By conquering his people, which he was in charge of. This is the same theology that you see when Paul in Romans, when he asked the question at the end of chapter 9, you will say to me then, how can he yet find fault, seeing as how nobody resists his will? Everybody does according to what God wills they will do. And then he asked the question, you're going to say to me, how is that fair? How can you say that everybody does what God determines they will do? How can he then find fault with them for doing it? And Paul's answer was to resort to God's sovereignty. The next thing he wrote was, who are you? Who are you, O man, that replies against God? And then he says, doesn't the potter have the right out of the same lump of clay to make one vessel to honor or one to dishonor? I mean, that's his argument. His argument is, well, God's sovereign. In other words, it doesn't matter that you don't like it or that you don't think it's fair or that you don't understand it. It's how God is. And so your theology has to adapt to the fact that that's how God is. So here he says, she has sinned against the Lord. So verse 15, raise your battle cry against her on every side. She has given herself up. Her pillars have fallen. Her walls have been torn down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. The same way, the very same Lord, the very same Yahweh, who said to the children of Israel that he was going to avenge himself against them because they didn't keep his law, they didn't follow his ways, they chased after foreign gods, they weren't brotherly and kindred and neighborly to each other, they didn't hold up his Sabbaths. For all those reasons, he came down on them, but he used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans to accomplish that. So God said, that's my vengeance, but he used people on the planet to accomplish it. Now, he says, he's going to destroy Babylon by these other nations, the Medes and the Persians, because that is the vengeance of the Lord. And you'll notice again that he uses a person to do it. Now, I don't know if I'll live long enough to see it, but God's going to do this exact thing one more time. He's still going to bring a person known as the little horn or known as the Antichrist that person who understands dark sentences, he's going to bring him to the planet and he's going to become a mighty world ruler. And God takes credit for it and says, that's my tribulation. That's the time of Jacob's trouble. I'm the one doing that. It's called the day of God, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath. All this language that says it's God's judgment, God's vengeance, God's wrath, but he uses people to accomplish it. Which means, again, God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of human beings because he ends up taking credit for the affairs of human beings. Human beings look like they're doing what they want to do, and God keeps saying, that's me, I'm doing that. Raise the battle cry, verse 15, against her on every side. She has given herself up. Her pillars have fallen down. Her walls have been torn down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. As she has done to others, so do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, the one who plants and raises up fields. The one who wields the sickle at the time of harvest. From before the sword of the oppressor, they will each turn back to his own people and they will each flee to his own land. Israel, he's talking about the northern tribes now. Israel is a scattered flock. The lions, by the way, the symbol of Babylon throughout was a lion with wings. Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria. And this last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to punish the king of Babylon and his land, just as I punished the king of Assyria. How did he punish the king of Assyria? He brought Babylon down on them. So he used Babylon to conquer Assyria. He used Babylon to take on Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem. But then in the midst of all that, they also ransacked God's temple, the place where God chose to place his name. And so they sinned against God in the way that they conquered Jerusalem. So God, one more time, is saying, the same way that I used Babylon to conquer the Assyrians, I'm now going to use the Medo-Persians to conquer the Babylonians because they're guilty of the way that they treated the Israelites. And I don't think God ever changed his mind. I still think he's watching the way nations deal with the Israelites. That's just a little personal aside. Verse 19, and I shall bring Israel back to his pasture. There's the promise again. And he will graze in Carmel and Bashan. And his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. It is really, really common these days. Okay, so we're not going to finish Jeremiah tonight. It is really, really common these days for folks, especially within Reformed circles, when they see the word Israel in the New Testament and then also extended into the Old Testament, they just make the automatic leap to that's the church. And whenever they see land promise, they say, well, that's the world because Abraham was promised to be the heir of the world. And so he's going he's to have the whole world and that's the land promise. Or they'll say the land is heaven. You know, it was that little sliver of land over in the Middle East, but it's satisfied in the saints of the church going to heaven. But look at how specific the language is here. It's not they're going to go to heaven, and it's not they're going to occupy the whole world, and in that way they're going to be satisfied in their land promises. The land promise given to Abraham is being satisfied here in verse 19 where God says, I will bring Israel back to his pasture. He will graze at Carmel and Bashan. Those are areas of the land that was promised to Israel. And his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. That's real, real specific. That's God saying, I will bring Israel back to their specific land. And when I do that, they're going to come back weeping, and they're going to come back seeking their God, and I'm going to make a new and an everlasting covenant with them. There's just no way to say that's satisfied in Jeff. Or anybody else, the church. There's no way to say that that's satisfied in the way that Jesus has drawn Gentiles to himself. Which is why Paul makes distinctions like after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved because he understands the difference. In those days, verse 20, in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel. Okay, now that's the big deal. The Israel replacement folks say, but they broke the law of God. They sinned against God. And their sin was so grievous that God had no choice but to do away with them forever because they broke the covenant. It was a conditional covenant. They broke it. God is done with Israel and Judah because of their sin, because of their trespasses. Here's God's answer. And we've seen it many, many times. We've seen God say the same thing over and over. Now he's going to say it through Jeremiah. In those days... When he restores Israel back to the land of Ephraim and Gilead in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel. Where is their sin? Where's their iniquity? It's gone. Notice, but there will be none. There will be no iniquity of Israel, no iniquity of Judah, because God is going to create a new covenant with them that is based in the finished work of Christ and his sacrifice, satisfying the wrath of God on their behalf. Because after all, as we read in Jeremiah 31, God said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them out of the land of Egypt. When I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke. So here, in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel 
but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. For I shall pardon or I shall forgive those whom I leave as a remnant. Against the land of Marathame, go up against it. And against the inhabitants of Pekod, these are areas of Babylon. Slay and utterly destroy them, declares the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. The noise of battle is in the land and great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut off and broken. So he admits that Babylon was the hammer he used, the instrument he used to conquer the whole Middle East. But now he's going to cut it off and break it. How Babylon has become an object of horror among the nations. I set a snare for you, and you were also caught, O Babylon. I find that just interesting. That sovereign God saying, yeah, you did exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah, and you did exactly what I said you were going to do. And I set a trap for you. And then you fell into my trap, and now you're guilty, so I'm going to destroy you. I set a snare for you, and you were also caught, O Babylon, while you yourself were not aware. You have been found and also seized because you have engaged in conflict with the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought forth the weapons of his indignation, for it is a work of the Lord of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come to her from the farthest border, open up her barns, pile her up like heaps, and utterly destroy her. Let nothing be left in her. Put all her young bulls to the sword, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe be upon them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. There is a sound of fugitives and refugees from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God. Vengeance for what? For his temple. Because the Babylonians destroyed the temple. God takes it personally. My temple is the place where I chose to place my name. That's where the Ark of my covenant was. That's the place where I came and met with the high priest. That's my place, and you destroyed it. So now I'm going to take vengeance for my temple. Summon many against Babylon, all who bend the bow, encamp against her on every side. Let there be no escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all that she has done, so do to her. For she has become arrogant against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. When we get to the book of Daniel, you're familiar with this story. There's a part of the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar is looking out over Babylon. And he says, is not this great Babylon which my hands have built? The very height of arrogance. It's God who put him in power and gave him all the nations. But he ends up saying, this is Babylon. My hands did all this. And God, as he always, always does, resists arrogance. Resists the pride. And makes that sound. (laughs) Verse 30. Therefore, her young men will fall in the streets, and all her men of war will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O arrogant one, declares the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I shall punish you. And the arrogant one will stumble and fall with no one to raise him up. And I shall set fire to his cities, and it will devour all his environs. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the sons of Israel are oppressed, the sons of Judah as well. And all who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let go of them. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will vigorously plead their case so that he may bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. 
A sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the oracle priests, and they will become fools. A sword against her mighty men, and they will become shattered. A sword against their horses and against their chariots, and against all their foreigners who are in the midst of her, and they will become like women." And the sword against her treasures, and they will be plundered. A drought on her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is the land of idols, and they are mad over her fearsome idols. I think that's a real interesting little detail, because as I told you nearly an hour ago, the way that the Medo-Persians got into Babylon was by drying up their water. And here God is being real specific and saying there's going to be a drought on their water. That's one of the ways they're going to be conquered. <coughs> Verse 39, therefore, the desert creatures will live there among the jackals. The ostriches will also live in it, and it will never be inhabited or dwelt in from generation to generation. That's still as true today as it was back then. Even Saddam Hussein couldn't change that. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, declares the Lord, no man will live there, nor will any son of man reside in it. Behold, a people is coming from the north, and a great nation and many kings will be aroused from the remotest parts of the earth. They seize their bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses, marshaled like a man for battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands hang limp. Distress has gripped him, agony like a woman in childbirth. Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thicket of the Jordan to a perennially watered pasture. For in an instant, I shall make them run away from it, and whoever is chosen, I shall appoint over it. For who is like me, and who will summon me, the NASB writers add, into court? Because that's the idea, that who could send a summons to God saying, you need to appear before the council. I don't like the way you do things. You're not fair this doesn't fit my humanistic ideas and values. But then God himself says, who's like me? And who's going to call me into court for what I've done? He can do whatever he wants to do. It's God again saying, I am absolutely sovereign among the affairs of men. And who then is the shepherd who can stand before me? Well, of course, we know the answer to that question is Christ. Christ alone is the only shepherd who's going to stand in front of him. The shepherds, as he said earlier, have led Israel astray. Their preachers, the ones who were supposed to take care of them, look after them, have led them into the Babylonian captivity. What's the answer? What's the solution? The only shepherd who can intercede between Israel and God. Verse 45. Therefore, Hear the plan of the Lord, which he has planned against Babylon, and his purposes, which he has purposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely they will drag them off, even the little ones of the flock. Surely he will make their pasture desolate because of them. At the shout, Babylon has been seized, the earth is shaken, and an outcry is heard among the nations." That takes us to chapter 51. We will pick up right there next week. Because even though I feel good standing up here preaching through the word, even though my body is feeling pretty good at the moment, the truth of the matter is I need sleep. <laughs> so <laughs> sleep is good. Sleep's a good thing. So next week we will pick up right at Jeremiah 51. He will continue to arouse against Babylon all the surrounding nations. We will close Jeremiah then, and we will open the book of Daniel. And we won't go deeply into all the eschatological parts of Daniel, but we will take a, a look at all the historic parts of Daniel, because Daniel is in Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And 
it is during the time that Daniel is still there that eventually Belshazzar is in charge in Babylon while his father, the king, is away in another city. And while he's, while he's in charge, he decides to have a feast. And he decides that the golden implements that were stolen out of the temple of God should be brought to him so that he can feast with the, the golden furniture from the temple, which is all holy, is not to be used for any common purpose. And he's going to use it for a Bacchanalia feast and then a handwriting on the wall. People get that wrong and they say, the handwriting is on the wall. No, it's an actual hand writing on the wall. Many, many tegelufarsum. And there are some translators and commentators who say the word eupharsin has its root in Persians, the ancient Chaldee word for Persians. So uh, that night, as Belshazzar's being judged, as, I love this King James phrase, as his loins are loosed, <laughs> as he's in fear for the handwriting on the wall, at that very moment, the uh, Medes and Persians are coming under the wall to conquer Babylon. So we'll start with Daniel, and we'll build to that point. And then uh, right about that point, or right around there, we'll take a look at uh, Esther, because that's going to happen during the time of the uh, Persian kings. Oh, we've got to get Ezekiel in there somewhere, too. So there's, there's lots and lots to do. Are there any questions about that? We didn't get anywhere near where I thought, but at least we closed 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and uh, we can move on from there. Okay? Okay. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.